Today's podcast, a lot going on. I've got an open about who was complicit in the Hall of Fame results we had for baseball this week. The Ben Simmons market. Is he really as much of a declining asset as everyone says he is? Ted Wynn, who will join us to do a film preview of both conference championship games and something that I've been talking about quite a bit, The Line, four-part documentary on the Seals from 2017. Doug Schultz, producer, director, creator of this amazing content, is going to talk about this awesome story, uh, which I can't wait to share with you, and life advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. I want to open today's podcast. I want to talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame. I want to talk about steroids and maybe the first week I've ever seen Twitter be in favor of voter suppression because everybody's so mad at the writers for not letting Bonds, Clemens, A-Rod in. Um, Let me just start with this, this overall statement. I want all these guys in. I'm totally fine with it, but I want to open it up to a further discussion so that we understand the full scope of this story. And I want to start with a quote. This is from Donald Fair in June of 2002, talking about potential testing of baseball players. He's the head of the union at this time on why he opposed testing. And Donald Fair said this, quote, this discussion can be summarized in a single word, privacy. Remember that because we're going to get back to it. Now, when it comes to the players, Clemens you know, in 1986, that first half of that season was one of those times as a little kid, you're like, okay, I can't, I can't believe this, this is the best thing ever. I want to try to emulate his, his wind up and all this kind of stuff. Um, even though I'd been into sports for a couple of years, that was like my first new peak as a Red Sox fan. And we know how great Clemens was. And then he went to Toronto and he was even better. And then he ended up with the Yankees, which I absolutely hated. And then he was 42 years old and had a 1A ERA. So I kind of knew at that point, <laughs> like, yeah, this seems weird. And then the bond spike, which if you read anything about it, we know what happened. And A-Rod was found guilty of it. And But I'm okay with it. I don't like it. I'm not endorsing it. But I'm okay with it if they ever end up being in the Hall of Fame. And it's pretty clear the first time through the writers are going to beat up on these guys if they ever let them in. And that's what upsets so many people. Let's go back and look at that timeline preceding that quote from Donald Fear in 2002. In 1998, Rick Helling is a pitcher. He was pretty good. Uh, he was pretty high up with the Players Association and tells Fear hey, we've got a huge problem. 
All right. That's back going back to some research that I did with Verducci articles from from almost two decades ago. Uh, in 2000, there were estimates that 30 to 40 percent of the players were actually using some sort of performance enhancing drug. Uh, and the real focus was in it's a lot of the top stars. Then Ken Caminiti did a piece with Verducci in 2002 where he's like, look, I used it changed me as a player, and it's a big, big issue. Um, Canseco then ratted everybody out because he actually felt like he was being blackballed, and it wasn't that he struck out a million times. He felt like he was being blackballed, so he was going to take it back out on everybody else. And then we had the Mitchell Report in 2007, which named a bunch of players. And I remember working with somebody who said, hey, this is the single biggest day in the history of baseball. I'm like, yeah, is it, though? And you know what? Removed from it, it definitely isn't. So we dealt with this all the time. I did. I started ESPN in 2006. I did. Hours upon hours of steroid conversation. I mean, if you were doing any kind of local radio, national radio, if you were doing any of it, you were talking steroids all the time. And it was the Bonds chase, and we were still cutting live in home runs because we felt like it was important. But we now realize that even though we kind of love numbers, we love new numbers, we certainly don't seem to care about old numbers. And I don't know if that's baseball's own fault. I guess it is in a way. I remember being a kid and wondering, hey, Dale Murphy's got 37 at the All-Star break, Dad. What does he project to? Now, if I have a son one day and he doesn't care about the second half projections of a home run total for a baseball season, we're going to find a way to get through that. All right. But yeah, it's desensitized us to the importance of all these things and steroids are to blame. But when we talk about blame, we do a really good job finding ways, as I've said many times, of finding ways to like, hey, who's to blame? Well, the player's the one that took it. Yeah, but can we blame anyone else? Because it felt like the majority of the blame this week was on the owners and then the voters, all right? Um, there's, there's another thing that I've mentioned in the past where, yeah, the NFL handled concussions about as poorly as you could possibly handle them, all right? Um, but then, you know, when you would come on a radio show and be like, in the NFL, you know, they used to put out VHS tapes, of the biggest hits. We're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. They're complicit. They're complicit for a million different ways, and they profited off of it as well. Noted. We get it. All right. The owners profited off of the home run chase, but so did the players. You know, people want to blame the writers and be like, oh, you guys were complicit too. I'd love to know, like, if in 2022, if an NBA writer were to accuse of an NBA star of using some sort of PED, how that would go over. Because I'm going to tell you right now that writer wouldn't be very popular if somehow we've retroactively said that it was all in the writers to expose all of this stuff. Because I think when things are happening, when bad things are happening, it's almost a gradual awareness of it. The other analogy I would use is this. If your kid came home shit-faced at 16, would you put him in rehab the next day? No, but you'd start paying a little bit more attention. What's his behavior? What's going on? Is he out all the time? Is he groggy in the morning? You know what I mean? Like you would start to go, wait, do we have an issue? And that's clearly what happened with baseball. At first, guys are jacked. They look like superheroes. Everybody's hitting home runs. They're breaking records. And then you start to hear over the course of a few years, no, 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 we actually have a major steroid problem. And for everybody that thinks the writers and all these people profited off of it, yeah, sure. There's probably a few national baseball writers that did pretty good with a raising interest in baseball during that time. But I doubt the beat writer for the Twins is a house in Malibu because of it. All right. When it comes to the owners, the owners wanted testing. The owners wanted testing. And that's why I get back to Donald Fear in that quote. If you know anything about the history of the Major League Baseball Player Union versus the owners, uh, and you should because it's important if you care about any of this stuff, um, you will understand there's one fundamental principle. Uh, I'll put it this way. If ownership said, hey, your per diem is $100 and we're going to go 20 and we're going to go 30 and we're going to go 50, you know, 20 for breakfast, 30 for lunch, 50 for dinner. The Players Association's first thing would be we want to if we're going to land on 100, we want the lunch, breakfast and dinner to be broken up differently. It's just the way it is. It goes all the way back to Marvin Miller and Marvin Miller, who hired 
hired Donald Fear in, in 1977. So Fear's head of the Players Association from 83 to 2009, all right? And as he argued privacy as the main concern, all right, he was going to oppose ownership for suggesting that there should be any kind of testing when even some of his own players were saying we needed testing. If you were a clean player, do you know how much it sucked for you at this point? And yet your union head is saying, well, you know, the owners want it, so we don't want to give it to them. All right. Then prior to the 2003 spring training, they said, we're going to do a sample testing. And this is where all those tests became public later on because they were supposedly supposed to be destroyed. They said if we were over a 5% positive rate for PEDs in the spring training of 2003, then we will instill some sort of testing and penalty program. All right. And by the way, the White Sox players, there's 16 of them that that spring training were going to refuse taking the test. All right. They were going to refuse taking it because they felt like it was some sort of violation and a move by the union giving in to ownership, which is something they fundamentally never wanted to do. So the tests obviously come back over 5% positive. So that means now we have to have some sort of steroid policy. Listen to the first agreed upon testing policy with penalties after those positive tests in 2003. And by the way, the proposals from the union were even more lenient than this. This was the first testing and penalty program in baseball. The first positive test, treatment. The second positive test, 15 days. A third positive test, 25-day suspension. A fourth positive test, a 50-day suspension. You could, in theory, be popped four times and be like, hey, when's July start? I'm ready to tear it up in the second half. And then on the fifth one, you would get a year. That was the first agreed-upon testing policy with penalties. Now, they moved it after a couple years. But that's the point, is that we found a way this past week to be so mad at the owners who, yes, profited off of this, to be mad at the writers who I guess were supposed to expose people publicly and work more on this than the other things. That's fine. I'll allow some of it. But we talk about who's complicit. Everyone is complicit in this. But there's been a massive shift away from, one, the guys who took the fucking stuff, which, again, I'm telling you, I know they took it and I still would want them in the Hall of Fame. But then beyond that, almost no association of what the players union did and Donald Fear, who was ahead of this, who fundamentally never wanted to give in. And if by not giving in, he actually allowed this stuff to happen. I've heard a lot of different proposals about what it will mean if A-Rod Bonds, Clemens, the rest of these guys ever get in. Because there's some guys that are hinted at, some guys that we know full deal, like A-Rod, we know exactly what happened, right? Um, I think they'll get into the Hall of Fame. Like I said, I'm fine with them getting into the Hall of Fame. But here's what I don't need. I don't need instructions on how to feel about baseball history, all right? I don't need instructions on this. I don't need my fucking handheld walking around Cooperstown going, well, how do you feel? You know, should this plaque have a little thing on it? Should it be in a separate wing over here? I don't, I don't need any of those things. I mean, to me, that doesn't make any sense. But whenever I look, look at this topic, right, whenever I hear people talk about it and get mad at the owners, fine, get mad at the writers, okay. Uh, rarely seem to ever get mad at the players. Um, never forget Donald Fear and the union's role in all of this, okay, because of their fundamental opposition to anything being proposed by the owners, all right, because they didn't want testing to happen, they actually allowed this era to continue. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it'd been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take 
a minute to get done. They set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Okay, double opens today for the podcast. I want to do a little on the James Harden-Ben Simmons thing, and I want to start with a real real clear question. What do you believe Ben Simmons' value was in August? What do you believe it is now going up to the February 10th deadline? And what do you think Ben Simmons' trade value would be, say, this summer, as maybe you, you have more certainty on the draft picks? I don't think it's changed much. I'm in a minority opinion on that one, and I think most people would look at it and be like, oh, well, you should have gotten rid of him in August. Okay, well, here's what I know was available and has been available. The C.J. McCollum thing, I think, is very clear. It was available. Philadelphia turned it down. Um, Sacramento has been thrown around different pieces, but when you hear like, oh, but no Fox Halliburton, you know, Barnes and Heald would make Philadelphia better than having zero people play in the Ben Simmons transaction. Um, but I can also understand Daryl saying, I, I think I can still do better than that. And then um, the Pacer stuff is always a little weird. Because I feel like there have been players that have been rumored to be available for the Pacers now for a long time. It's apparently cranked up a bit more recently. And as much as I like Sabonis, I think he's somebody that kind of plays in the same area of the court uh, at times as Embiid. Even though he can face and drive a little, he likes trail stuff. He likes to be around the hoop, mid-post, maybe a little bit deeper on catches and all that kind of stuff. I'm just not sure how that fit is with Embiid because I still just want spacing around Embiid, who, by the way, is like putting up a serious MVP case. That guy has been insane now uh, for a few weeks. So... I believe the value has been consistent and that Daryl's not getting what he wants. Uh, the public seems to be arguing that he's this massively declining asset. And I would, I, even though I know I don't know everything, clearly, I would ask you, like, what do you think the great offer was in August or the very beginning of the season? And then wh- why do you think those offers have gone away? All right. Because here's, here's what we know about the league. Like Daryl Morey said publicly, we need to add somebody that greatly increases our chances of winning a championship. Okay. That that's Lillard. It's Beal. It's Jalen Brown. I mean, it could be other people, but that's when you ask people around the league, like who is he targeting? Those are the guys. All right. Um, now the ownership, apparently according to reports, they have more Maury's back. They're totally on the same page, which is the only thing they're going to say publicly. Cause really what Maury was doing is one, I think he's telling the truth, but he's also giving everybody a warning that maybe is holding back from their assets before the, February 10th deadline, thinking that Maury's going to give in. That was a very public advertisement, uh, advertisement of their position saying, hey, look, we, we may not do this. So if you don't, none of you guys want to step up, we'll take this into the summer. And I have ownerships backing on all of this. It could be a play. Well, look, it is a play, but it also could be the truth too, right? Um, this, is, this is why I don't think the value has changed all that much. Because between the deals that we all sort of hear the rumblings about and where we're at now, I, I just never really buy that. Like, you don't know what could be available in the summer. You don't know who the next guy is who's going to get mad. You don't know who the next GM is that's going to get fired. Maybe there's an ownership struggle. Uh, maybe Lillard goes, all right, this year sucked, and I don't like this, and I don't want to play for this coach, and the front office is, has no direction, and you guys haven't added enough. And so I went from annoyed to now forceful. Um, maybe Boston goes, hey, a full season, early bounce from the playoffs. Maybe we need to make a change instead of making a change before February 10th. Maybe the Washington deal with 
with Beal, who I always felt was comfortable there because he just wanted the longer extension. But then there was a report saying that he's warning the front office that they need to add. What I'm telling you is there's going to be somebody whose current position changes between now and this summer. And maybe it's before the deadline. All right. That's a possibility, too. Things change very fast. That's not debatable in this league. It happens all the time. And I think that's what Daryl is banking on. I don't like what I'm being offered. Yes, it feels like I'm wasting an Embiid season, which you know, is a very strong argument that it's like, look, just get him out of there and add some sort of pieces. But to suggest that Simmons' value is a declining asset that is perpetually headed downwards, I don't think is fair. And I don't think it's a great understanding of how the league works because all of a sudden now when somebody else has an untenable situation with their guy, they may go, oh, all right, well, I guess now we can at least get Simmons because we're forced to trade a guy that before we were not forced to trade. So I'm just glad, too, that The Athletic wrote about the Harden-Simmons thing that almost happened a year ago because it was really close. And as they reported, and I had said a year ago on the podcast that Simmons apparently was already asking about houses in the Houston area, and I was told that Harden asked the Sixers about wearing number 13, which is not available because of Will Chamberlain. So I don't expect a ton of people to agree with this, but I, I don't know. I feel like whenever I map it out this way, I just convince myself again. It's... It, I don't I don't think that there was the A minus B plus asset available in August that is now completely off the table six months later. And if it doesn't happen in February 10th, I think it's very reasonable to think there will be multiple scenarios that present themselves from other franchises that either want to make changes or are forced to make changes where now Simmons comes back into play. So waiting isn't popular. Waiting can seem like a waste. I know people don't like Daryl. They give him a hard time, which is fine. I just don't agree with the declining asset timeline that I see repeated all the time. Saruti, you got anything on that? I would just say, do we know that even when one of those guys, if it's a Lillard, if it's a Beal, if it's somebody bigger, you know, did the six are the Sixers going to be at the top of that list of assets? I mean, Simmons clearly doesn't move the needle for a lot of these franchises. A lot of these franchises don't seem like they want to help them out either. Like they know how suppressed his value is. And they're like, well, we're not going to help you out, bail you out of the situation that's a disaster. So are there my only worry would be like, yeah, you could wait for that to happen. You're also going to, like you said, continuously waste a good Embiid season and future Embiid seasons. But are they even at the top of the list? Like what assets do they have versus other teams around the league that would put them at the top of the list for the next superstar that wants out? It would only be that it would have to be like a forced hand deal where the guy's like, hey, I want out, but I also yeah. only want to go here. You know, where Harden was able to do that because he he had less time left where Lillard, you know, has still has years left. And again, it was always kind of the, the unknown thing with with Simmons. You're like, wait, you want out and you your four year con- extensions kicking in. So, um, uh, by the way, I should have done this earlier. I should have mentioned Atlanta. Because there's always Atlanta rumblings. But the funniest thing was when I had heard, hey, not only do, does, does Philadelphia want a superstar back, um, they Kevin want, Herter. well, Herter, <laughs> I, I think you'd have to throw in Thibel and Simmons to get her. Uh, that it was like, oh, by the way, would you wait, take on Tobias Harris' salary as well? Oh, and he's like, okay, gosh. all right. I mean, <laughs> so I, I don't know it. if there's, but see, here's the point on Atlanta. Does Atlanta get to a point in another, well, I mean, look, the deadline is very close. We're like two weeks away from it. Does the deadline, I don't know if Atlanta is going to have the answers to all that, but could Atlanta say, hey, look at all this depth we had and we've developed and we felt great about it. 
yet. Now we have to like make a change this summer. Push the chips in, yeah. Yeah, who who are the five really disappointed franchises that go, okay, we need to make some kind of change. And so I don't, I just, I'm only presenting it this way. I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to suggest there's more options that maybe present better value that happen this summer, even, but if, again, if you're telling me, hey, fuck that, get, get him beat some help. This guy's insane what he's doing right now. And the East may be open because of the uncertainty of all these different things, although I still am sort of deferring to Milwaukee when Milwaukee's right. And I don't know what the Brook Lopez thing is going to be. Supposedly, he could come back before the playoffs. I'm not sure. Uh, I still think Milwaukee could win it without him. Maybe they add another guy. Maybe there's some kind of buyout. So we know the finished product is not always the case with the top contending teams. So the Embiid thing is hard for me to argue against. It's a very, it's a very strong position. I just don't think that if we were grading Ben Simmons, if he had a stock price on him, you know, the stock was low in August. I don't, I don't think it's dramatically lower with no chance of ever going higher again. I just don't. And that's not so much because of who he is. It's because of the urgency of scenarios that have not presented themselves yet. Would you do Mo Bamba, Suggs, and no. T. Ross for him? No. You don't no, want I would there? trade Suggs. I love Suggs. I was never, I've never wavered off my Suggs support. Um, I would trade Mo Bamba, <laughs> but I don't know why they would want a center. I, I've, I've said multiple <laughs> times, I, I, in a vacuum, I would take a shot on Simmons. I just wouldn't trade it for him. Like, I, I'd want him in the building. I'd want to see if I could, especially like with the Magic, they did it with Marco Fultz. Maybe they could do it with Simmons, but I'm not yeah, trading I, anything of significant value to get him when nobody I, else around the league is willing to do that either. Uh, I think you'd have to give something up for him, dude. I don't, I don't would they think do it's Marco Fultz for Ben Simmons, give him back, send him back to Philly. Hey, we fixed him. Here you go. There you go. You're welcome. Go to yeah. the repair shop. Uh, Sug still isn't shooting it all that well from outside, but the no, shooting but, numbers. But, no, but the shooting numbers have gone up, and he's starting to put up some numbers here. Which you know the the overall stuff, fifteen five and five, and then the overall shooting numbers. I just I love his aggressiveness. I was watching him again. I watched him twice in the last week. Just you know, not full end to end games. Um, but it it I I'm a little concerned about the offensive limitations at times. But there's a the thing that I loved about him and Gonzaga still translate to the NBA. You just hope it's not as a third guard, as a role guy. Uh, you hope Basketball IQ, that. athleticism, defensive awareness. The guy has everything. The shooting will come. I think he has to figure out how to finish at the rim, too. He'll get there. I'm not worried about it. Not worried at all. That dunk he threw okay. out the night was absurd. Be all right. I mean, the, the thing is that we got Franz Wagner now. So it's, he, he can like he's kind of in the shadow of Franz. So. There you go. Saruti, official statement. Not worried. Magic 30 seconds. There you go. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. I'm fired up. It's Ted Wynn who joins us now from The Athletic. His breakdowns uh, for the NFL are incredible. It just just a really good job of just discussing kind of that next level stuff. So thanks for doing this, man. Happy to uh, finally connect. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on and excited to get talking about these playoff games. All right, so let's uh, let's dig into it. San Francisco's on a roll here against the Rams. I believe it's six straight. Uh, they beat them twice this year. Week 10 was a blowout. They changed L.A. changes some things up. Looks like they're going to win that game. And then, you know, they end up with a big comeback. What is it about San Francisco against L.A. that's worked out for the Niners so much the last six matchups? Well, it's just their style of offense really fits well with what uh, the Rams want to do on defense. Defensively, last season, they had Brandon Staley as their defensive coordinator, and his philosophy is to play with two deep 
safeties and play with a light box and try to force things outside. And, you know, they don't mind having teams run on them. But when you play a team like the Niners who are patient and can run the ball, uh, it, it's just not a great matchup. And actually last season was when um, the Debo Samuel at running back experiment kind of started against the Rams because uh, Shanahan saw that if he was going to go into 11 personnel, they would get these really light boxes. And they started using Debo as a running back and using the running back as a fullback. And that really started paying dividends for them. And last last season, when you look at the box score, he didn't get a ton of carries, but he got a bunch of those tap passes where the quarterback just kind of flips the ball in front of you, which is basically a handoff. And that's where this Debo Samuel running back thing gets got started. And then in week 10 this season, they went back to it and they had a lot of success with it. And then Elijah Mitchell got hurt the next game. And then they just kept Debo at running back. And it's been really successful for them. And, you know, it's just the fact that they can run the ball so patiently uh, against the Rams that that really gives them a lot of trouble just because their philosophy is we'll give up some run as long as we can defend the explosive passes. But the the Niners don't pass the ball deep. That's not what they do. They love running the ball. And it just uh, it's just a bad matchup for the Rams. So as you point out, the Week 10 to Week 18, they did change it. They played more single mm-hmm. high. Uh, we know that the Rams play a lot of zone. So based on the film breakdowns of at least just this season, what do you think the move is here? I mean, it was just stacking the box with it, with the Rams against the Niners, making Garoppolo go over the top in an area where he just normally, even though he has some deep numbers that are actually decent too. So it's Garoppolo is always, you know what? Let me back up here before I ask you to change. Give me your just opening statement on who Jimmy Garoppolo is as a quarterback and what you think about him. Well, I think Garoppolo has gotten better. This season, he's improved as a quarterback. He's throwing with better anticipation. He has more command of that Niners offense. I, I think he's a good quarterback, uh, but he's definitely helped out by the system. He's helped out by having a guy like George Kittle, who's at the top of his position, a guy like Debo Samuel, who's at the top of his position. And they both create a lot of yards after the catch. Uh, but the thing is with Jimmy, I think the, his propensity for the turnover, especially in really bad time, times negates uh, how, you know, the good things he brings to the offense. And um, thankfully, the Niners have a really good defense that can erase some of those mistakes. Uh, but to me, Jimmy Garoppolo is just a better than average quarterback and a turnover things just really scares me. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons why the Niners are moving on from him next year uh, if everything goes as planned. Um, but you know, it's just hard for me to see Jimmy, um, succeeding in another system. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was always kind of the thing. Like when they grabbed Trey, then I'm like, all right, so this means, this means that they want to move on from Garoppolo. Uh, the O line D line stuff, the win rate here, we know the Rams have the best one. Um, and they know that, you know, Garoppolo primarily throws, I think it's 12 of his 14 interceptions were against zone, which is what they're going to do. So I guess back to the question that I sort of interrupted myself from, now that we've packaged the two different versions of playing against the Niners, where clearly Week 18 was more successful despite the comeback, like what do you think the game plan is going to be for the Rams defensively then? I think it'll be similar to Week 18. They're not going to go into the Niners game playing the same style of defense they did before, which is playing with those two deep safeties and light boxes. Uh, I think the the week eighteen approach was the correct approach. They were gonna they put an extra guy in the box. They played more single high defenses. Um, they played some six man defensive lines, uh, which is a tactic that the um, the Patriots use against them in the Super Bowl, which helped stop their run game too. So they they were really stacking the box against the run and and just daring Jimmy Garoppolo to beat them. 
and to his credit, he he did. He uh, he had 316 yards, but he also had two interceptions in that game, and he was sacked three times. So he had some negative plays too. Uh, I, I think the best thing is to bet if Jimmy Garoppolo can beat you again. Um, and Jimmy's hurt in the playoffs too. He has a shoulder injury, he has a, a finger injury. Um, you know, he never threw with a ton of zip, but it just looks like you know he he's really struggling to put some mustard on a ball. So I think if you you force him to beat you. You play a little more zone, force him to throw into tight windows. That's the formula. And if he does, he does. But I just don't think that you can go into his game and just dare the Niners to beat you on the ground because they have so many times in the past. Uh, Stafford, if we break it down to how he does against man versus zone, and again, the Niners are more of a, a zone-heavy team, correct? Uh, yes, they're a zone-heavy team, but they also play a lot of uh, man match defenses, which is kind of in between zone and and man uh and it's one of their better type of defenses that they've played a lot against uh the packers so uh it's kind of in between but i think that's the formula to uh that you want to use against stafford to play a lot of too high and play those man match type of defenses so stafford's number one against man um i think some of the numbers would would indicate as you point out he's number nine against zone um, but the blitz thing is is remarkable. I, mm-hmm. Stafford has basically been the best quarterback in the NFL in the last three years against the blitz. So it sounds very simple: play zone, don't blitz. But you know you have to balance it. You can't be that predictable, as you're kind of alluding to with some of the man match stuff that that San Francisco does. We also know what the corners. San Francisco felt like a weakness. Like I I love what this team is doing. I kind of feel like their defensive attitude is reminiscent of a team that only made the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, but it, at the cornerback position, it's, it's clearly not the same level of talent. So how do you balance all of that stuff, knowing, hey, here's what the numbers tell us to do, but we can't exactly come out and play the same stuff the entire time? Yeah, I think with the Niners, um, the, it, it sounds kind of cliche, but their four-man pass rush is, is what's going to be key in this game. You know, Watching that Week 18 game, I thought there was going to be some huge adjustment from um, from D'Amico Ryan's in the second half of that game where they really stifled the Rams. But when you watch that game, that four, that four-man pass rush just took over in that second half. I think uh, one thing that the Rams do struggle with is they struggle with uh, interior pressure if you have two good guys on the inside and some power rushers. And that's exactly what the Niners have. They have a bunch of guys that can rotate inside, Eric Armstead, and they have power rushers on the outside like Nick Bosa. Uh, so that gives the Rams a lot of trouble. And as far as the blitzing, um, D'Amico Ryans doesn't blitz a lot, but he likes to blitz in pressure situations. And, you know, he, he blitzes so little that whenever he does blitz, it kind of catches offenses by surprise and they're just not ready for it. And that's what happened in the, the last offensive snap the Packers had um, in that, that divisional game um, when Rodgers threw into double coverage. Uh, Ryans brought both safeties on a pressure and they dub- they bracketed um, Adams. and. Against Stafford, you know, I think that we'll see some blitzes like that in high leverage situations. Um, and in those situations, um, Stafford likes to go to Cup a, a majority of the time. Uh, you know, our, our Shield digs a stat up, but Cup has the most production against a blitz from any receivers in the last 15 years. So that's, that's Stafford's safety blanket. So I think what the Niners will do is uh, they'll take a similar approach. If they do blitz Stafford, they're going to bracket Cup and make him go to another option against the blitz. Let's take a look at the AFC title game here. Um, 
Cincinnati was basically flawless offensively. I mean, the numbers are off the charts. Jamar Chase, I mean, look, Burrow was, I mean, what, over 400-plus yards. Chase is over – I mean, it was it was one of those historic kind of offensive games. What happened? How did that get so bad for Kansas City on defense? I think uh, one thing that they can't do in this game that they did in that Week 17 matchup was pr- um, play so much press coverage against um, Chase – I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to disrupt the timing of the offense and let their defensive line work and and beat that offensive line for the the Bengals. But they pressed Chase so much, and the way their coverages were structured, it just made uh, the it made it really easy for the Bengals' offense to get a one on one with Chase. And obviously, Chase just ate ate up those cornerbacks uh, and safeties in one on one coverage. Uh, so I think. Um, in this second matchup, they have to play a little more off coverage. And Spagnolo is, you know, he can be a little stubborn with adjusting at times. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he changes his approach this time and backs off of Chase and make them beat them, you know, make them pass, you know, uh, throw hitches and now screens and that kind of thing and just rally up and, and tackle them. They have to be able to take a little more patient approach with Chase just because they don't have the guys to match up with them. Now, Burrow is incredible for a bunch of different reasons, but that he could get his ass kicked the way he did against Tennessee and also just the way he could get his ass kicked all season long um, and then still put up these kinds of numbers, yards per attempt. Uh, he's on absolute fire again here uh, as we get later into the year. How much of that is based on your film study? Because we know the sack rate, um, the sack allowed rate is the second worst in the NFL for Cincinnati, but Kansas City's actual sack rate from the defensive perspective is the second worst um so throw in whatever you want on how you see the matchup but let me first start with burrow and the sacks because i still feel like there were maybe three against tennessee because we had a lot to pick from where you're like he's going to get rid of that ball a little bit quicker how much do you think is on him and how much is on the offensive line i would say if you look at the majority of sacks especially in the playoffs it's probably a little bit more on the offensive line just because guys are getting beat so quickly especially in the interior in that game jeffrey simmons just dominated in that game and, and it's hard for a quarterback uh to consistently beat interior pressure when it's getting through that quickly but like you said there are times when uh, burrow does hold on to the ball but i think that's part of his game you know you can't take that w- away from him you can't just have him uh throw quickly all the time without trying to create a big play just because uh he's so good out of structure and I, I think that's going to continue to be part of his game uh but it's um you know, in that week 17 matchup, he made some really nice escapes against the Chiefs uh, pass rush where they had free rushers coming in and he was able to escape and find an open receiver. So I think he's going to continue to do that. And for them to keep scoring and keep pace with that uh, Kansas City offense, they're going to need him to create and um, try to make some big plays out of structure. Uh, so he'll take some sacks, but um, I, I think for the Bengals, they hope that they'll have more good than bad because that's the only way that they're going to keep uh, pace with that offense. And you also talked about like some of the formations in your breakdown of the athletic, where it's like the three by one, where Kansas City just looked like they were making pre-snap mistakes, and then even you know av- obviously after the fact in coverage. And Chase is really special, but. Uh, you did a great job of just kind of showing, like, look, look how bad their pre-snap alignment is. Three by one, you've got three receivers to the left, and then you're allowing with the slot to have two man, two um, 
single coverage options with Chase being on the outside. And it's like, all right, so you're already starting with Chase and single coverage with no safety help because you have five to three on the left side. I'd have to imagine that the Kansas City prep for this one is is showing, you know, I'm not saying it's happening every snap, but that almost can't happen against Chase at any point. Like, I know it's always going to happen. You put somebody in motion, there's there's a lack of communication, you don't know who you're passing it off to, but you're showing some really good still shots of the pre-snap and you go, okay, this is already a major problem, and it was that entire day. Yeah, it's just when you have a great receiver and you have a quarterback like Burrow, you can't make it so easy for them to just reduce the game into a, a you know game of one-on-one against Chase. Um, so, yeah, like you said, in those three-by-one formations, they would single Chase by himself, and the safety over Chase, would instead of playing over top of Chase, he would play man-on-man on a running back and come down, and it would just be a one-on-one with Chase on a cornerback. And in two-by-two, the way their coverage is structured, all the Bengals had to do was run their slot in a vertical, and the safeties would get taken up, and Chase would have a one-on-one on the outside. So um, they're going to have to adjust. They can't let the Bengals have those one-on-ones so easily. And obviously, Chase just ate up those one-on-ones and had uh, a career day. All right, Kansas City on offense. Uh, this ended up being the best offense in the NFL again this year. Uh, but if you do go back and look at the separation of other years of Kansas City, I think the difference was is that there was a bigger gap with previous Kansas City offenses to the next best offense, where this year they're still the best, but the gap wasn't significant. I remember kind of looking at it at one point, and we're like, all right, this is why we feel like, hey, they're still the best, but we're comparing them to their own peak as opposed to the rest of the league. This year, where scoring actually dipped again because we we had we had people back in the stands. So the the coverage that looks like it works best against Kansas City, based on your breakdown, is is the cover two, right? Too high safety with this, and we understand that everybody's keeping things back. And I think there's maybe sometimes would you admit sometimes there's confusion with like, wait, is it cover two or is it four shell? You know what I mean? Like there seems to be at times where it's like we think it's this, but it's actually this. Correct? Yeah, I think it's more so. Um... You know, it's not just too deep zone, it's um, too deep safety. So you can have a bunch of different coverages with two deep safeties. You can play cover four out of two deep safeties. Uh, you could play cover two. Um, but I think just the general principle is if you keep your guys back deep um, and rally up to tackles, then you can at least slow down the Chiefs or at least make them impatient to where uh, Mahomes might throw throw you a prayer prayer ball into your deep coverage. And that kind of worked in the beginning of the season. Um, I think Mahomes got a little frustrated at times, and he tried to throw into these deep coverages. Uh, but then I think the Chiefs' offense has gotten a lot better towards the end of the season because uh, the Chiefs were I mean, Mahomes was willing to take those short passes. He was, you know, able to hit the last step of his drop, throw short, let his receivers create, and just was a lot more patient. And then when the defense came up, then he was able to punish them deep. Um, and the Bengals, I think, with as far as they're secondary. They just don't have the guys to match up uh, with the Chiefs when they play man-to-man, and that's what they want to do. They want to play man-to-man. That's what they've done all season. Uh, but against the Chiefs, I just don't see them being able to do that, and they got killed in man-to-man in that Week 17 matchup. And when they played too deep, they their stats were a little bit better because they were able to rally up and tackle. Uh, so I just think that's their best bet. Obviously, they're not going to do it the entire game. Uh, but I just think playing more too deep coverages and just hoping uh, that you know you could rally up and make tackles or Mahomes might get impatient is your best bet. But there's just not a ton of good options against the way Mahomes is playing right now. 
Uh, with all the work that you do, I kind of wanted to ask you a couple of the questions. Is there anyone, is there a quarterback that once you really dug into the film, your perception of them completely changed? Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this question and it's pretty difficult, but I think um, when you look at a quarterback like Garoppolo, you know, I know we already talked about him, but there's just so many uh, different opinions and uh different takes on him um and you, you know when you just look at the uh, the numbers and i think a lot of the analytics guys like jimmy garoppolo when you just look at the numbers but when you really watch him and you know you watch some of the throws he makes some of the some of his best throws are just tight window throws into the middle of the field where it would be a hospital ball you know five years ago without these targeting rules um but yeah when you watch him it just doesn't seem like a, a formula that's replicable in a different system. Uh, so I know we talked about Jimmy Garoppolo, but I think that's the guy just because there's so many different opinions on him. But when you really dig into the film, you just see a lot of problems. And, you know, that's a reason why uh, they drafted Trey Lance. Jeff Garcia is still a fan. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, give me, give me a coach. That's the most stubborn. Uh, most stubborn. Uh, well, when when uh, I saw this question, I thought you're. T- uh, were you talking about the guys that are in the playoffs right now, or are you just talking about like overall in the league? Honestly, whatever you think the better answer is, I kind of was leaning towards overall because I mean we only have four. We only have four teams left, but just somebody who you go, all right, these guys do not want to change what they do. I mean, Spags would probably be in the conversation um, if he might win it, but you know, it it can be. Yeah, give me a coordinator, give me a head coach, or just something. I mean, it doesn't even necessarily mean that it's wrong. I think Rex mm-hmm. was somebody that was always incredibly stubborn, especially with that Jets run. Where I just remember how funny that was. It's like, wait, so you just blitz all the time, and now you're going to win football games? Like that doesn't <laughs> like they're the first team ever that was like we're just going to blitz all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But it was an attitude thing with them a little bit more. Yeah, is there somebody that jumps out? Somebody who you think is like just not not that malleable as, as a coordinator head coach yeah well uh, just look at the playoff um the playoff guys i think Andy reed is pretty stubborn as far as the way he does things but uh to his credit he finds a way to come through at the end but you know like when you talk to guys around the league and you know i did some digging when the, the chiefs are struggling and uh you know there were some people that were just like you know Andy reed will not run the ball no matter what he's not gonna uh you know start running the ball with more frequency, even though he's seeing these two deep defenses, uh, he's just going to do what he does and he he's going to keep passing. But their adjustment was to eventually take some shorter passes, but they were still passing at a very high rate. Um, so I, I think, you know, Andy Reid is very stubborn. I don't think that's a bad thing per se, but, you know, I mean, his he's going to do what he does and that's um, who he has been since uh, the, the Philadelphia days. Okay. Uh, give me somebody who is the quickest to adapt. Um, I think Shanahan is really quick to adapt, but he doesn't completely revamp his system. It's not like he's going to go to like a four wide system. Uh, but I think what he does really well is he anticipates how defenses are going to counter what he does. And he just tinkers with the system a little bit here, a little bit there. And he's able to like, stay a step ahead of of defensive coordinators and what defenses want to do um, against him. All right, so let's leave on this then. Uh, the conference championships, it, it feels like with your breakdowns of all the scenarios you run by, it feels like you like the favorites, correct? Yeah, I I, I just think with the Rams, it's um, 
it's really tough to beat a good team seven teams and seven times in a row. <laughs> and I also might, think, we, we might've said that five, like at five, it's tough to beat them six yeah. times in a row. So. Yeah. And, and I think that the Rams had them, they had the right formula to beat the Niners. Um, and Garoppolo just had, you know, just went off in that second half. And I just don't know if that's going to happen again in, in this, in this matchup, especially with Garoppolo Herc. And I, I think with the chiefs, um, when you watch that Bengals game, they they had their opportunity to win. I think they let off the gas in the second half a little bit. And uh, an important aspect of that game is uh, their left tackle didn't play. Orlando Brown got hurt in the warmups, and Joe Thune, their guard, had to um, go to left tackle, and that was pretty impactful. They had some really bad pressures from that side in the second half. So I think the Chiefs will uh, win this game. I think they might win by more than a touchdown just with the way they're playing. Hey, thanks a lot. You can check out Ted's breakdowns on The Athletic, uh, along with a guy who's joined us a few times, Shokapadia, as well. They're really they're really helpful. Uh, they're a lot of fun, and you kind of just present options. Like, hey, here's their tendencies. Here's maybe some of the things that we'll do, and uh, I enjoy the work you put into it. So thanks again. Appreciate you having me on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You've heard me talk about the line four-part documentary on a Navy SEAL charged with war crimes. Uh, it's on Apple, on the streaming device, and I'm serious. It's one of my favorite things that I've watched in the last couple of years. Uh, I'm surprised it's not more popular, so let's make it more popular. Director, producer of this fantastic, fantastic documentary, Doug Schultz joins us. So let's start, let's timeline this out uh, and give some backstory and kind of where we're at sure. with it. Um, as Eddie Gallagher is the head of SEAL Team 7, um, this is a platoon that's that's going over to Mosul to basically liberate it from ISIS. Um, we have footage of all of this stuff. It's incredible, Doc. And clean up maybe anything that I have because I, I think he wasn't yeah. actually the head of SEAL Team 7 platoon. Right. There was somebody He's, above him. But tell us the backstory of these guys going over there. Sure. Eddie is the chief of Alpha Platoon, which is one of the platoons in SEAL Team 7. Um, and they, they deployed to Mosul in late February of 2017. Um, and he came, he had already had, I think eight deployments, seven or eight deployments, um, several combat deployments. And so the guys going in to alpha platoon, uh, were very excited. Eddie had an incredible reputation. They knew he was really aggressive. And, you know, if you're a Navy SEAL, you've been training your entire time for a big event. And at that time, Mosul was the place to go. Um, you know, it was ISIS's last stand. And the mission was to go and help support uh, the Iraqi ERD, which is basically Iraqi Special Forces, uh, in clearing Mosul out of, uh, in clearing ISIS out of Mosul. And, and so that's what they deployed over there to do. And Eddie is, um, you know, is he? He's he's on camera through this. He was a kid, maybe had some issues in high school, but he's mm -hmm. a tough guy. Um, he's not the biggest guy, but clearly the other younger SEAL team members were in awe of him. He was one of their trainers, I believe, at Buds. So there was yeah. there was a very clear understanding of who Eddie was at that time, and they were fired up to serve for him, correct? They really were. I mean, all of them say that. And, you know, he he came in, he, he may not be, be the biggest guy height-wise, but he definitely was physically 
very imposing. I mean, he's incredibly fit. They all talk about how he was a fast runner. And those are the kind of things that when you're a young SEAL going through BUDS, if you have this as your instructor, you know, you idolize this guy. So to land up in a platoon and deploy to Mosul with him as the chief, you know, they couldn't have been more excited about it. Right. They're like, this is the A assignment. Like we're the A team. We were the best platoon with like, and now we got Eddie. So let's go, let's go over there. Uh, they get there. Um, and a bunch of stuff goes down. So let's start with kind of the first warning signs of, of maybe some resistance and some of the younger SEAL members not necessarily loving the way things are playing out. Sure. I mean, you first you, to understand, uh, before they deploy, you go through what's called a workup. And that can be, you know, anywhere from six to 18 months of the team working together, training, you know, practicing all the skills they're going to need on deployment. So they'd already spent a good chunk of time together. And had a very successful run at it. They, you know, were constantly at the top in terms of rankings. And so when they get to Mosul, almost immediately, it seems like something changed. And the guys talk about how Eddie was saying things like, you know, someone's going to get killed. This is going to be an awesome deployment. Um, just things that felt a little bit off. And that was sort of the first thing that they, um, that they describe, you know, feeling like something is a little bit off. Uh, they described it as a complete 180 when they landed on the ground. And the actual deployment in the beginning, and we see this footage of the guys being bored out of their minds and going, yeah. this is bullshit. The whole setup's fucked up um, because right. it was a AAA assignment where it felt a little bit like, well, it didn't a little bit. It's very clear what happened, that Washington, D.C. decides the way we're going to sell this is we're aid assist. And I forget what the third is, but. It's we're, we're not going to be on the front lines. The Iraqis are going to lead this. Then the Iraqis are looking at these Navy SEALs being like, you guys are, I mean, the quote is you guys are pussies for not right. being up at the front lines with us. And so there's this massive confusion and frustration very early on, correct? Yeah, that's right. And initially it was actually a double A mission, which meant advise and assist, but they weren't allowed to accompany. And then it changed to the point where they could accompany the Iraqi troops up to a certain point, but they had to stay behind the forward line of troops. Um, and then that's when they started, uh, on occasion, turning off these things called Blue Force trackers, which allow um, our, our people to, to monitor where all of our guys are. They would turn them off so that they could cross the front line and get closer to the action. Um, and, you know, some of the guys were not against doing this. Uh, they wanted to, these guys were, you know, hard chargers. They wanted to get in there. They wanted to engage and they felt frustrated that that wasn't happening. So when Eddie proposed that they do this or told them they were doing this, a lot of the guys were like, hell yeah, let's go. And then somebody gets shot. Yeah. So, uh, you know, within a couple of months of getting there, the guys were, they say that Eddie was, uh, making them go to, the same location repeatedly. So, you know, they would go to a location and uh, ISIS would find them and start shooting at them. And then Eddie would instruct them to go to the same spot the next day, even though the spot was burnt. And some of the guys felt like this was bad tactics, was putting them in danger. And they claimed that he was using them as bait, essentially, um, sending them out there to draw fire so they could see where ISIS was and then uh, attack. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things where, you know, Eddie doesn't, he doesn't consider it using them as bait, but he says this is a tactic. You know, you it's like the old tactic where you put up a helmet on a stick and draw fire so you can see where the enemy is. Um, the guys are saying that basically they were a human version of that on, when whenever they went to these locations. 
So the turning off the trackers, which, as you said, it was wasn't a complete mutiny against Eddie Gallagher leading this platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, but then somebody ends up getting shot. So in the footage, we see a soldier who's shot, and then we hear a story from as the SEAL members start to kind of turn on Eddie Gallagher, being like, "Hey, he was screaming at the guy that shot, saying you weren't past this line. All right, so when you go back to." get medical treatment, make sure you tell them we weren't past this line, which kind of starts right. to plant the seed of it feels like it's a rogue deal with Eddie Gallagher. Whether that's fair or not, that's how it's at least portrayed. Yeah, you know, these guys are all, you know, he's their chief, so they've got to do what he says. But uh, in that on that occasion, you know, their EOD guy, explosive ordinance guy, got shot. Um, they got him down off the roof. Uh, it's pretty harrowing footage to see, you know, they I think they um, injected him with... Uh, I can't remember what they what they shot him up with, but he he survived. He's fine, um, and that's at the end of the day. Eddie's takeaway is you know he's fine. He lives. That war is going to happen. People are going to get shot. Okay, um, but people started to turn against him at that time because this is one of their guys. There was another incident around the same time where one of the Iraqi interpreters got blown up um, in a similar situation, but he wasn't. You know the Terps were part of the team essentially because they worked with them. But I think in Eddie's mind, they were, you know, or, and even in the team's mind, you know, he wasn't an American sailor. He wasn't one of the seals. So when one of their own gets shot and they think that it's because of negligence on Eddie's part, that's when people start to think maybe this is not a great situation. Okay. And then there's also other serious allegations. They're accusing him of using, um, I don't know what the drug was or, or what you can explain it. And that he was staying on the gun as a platoon leader. Like it's a little weird for you to stay on the sniper post that long. And then there's guys saying, yeah, I straight up saw him taking shots at, at civilians, um, which is breaking the rules of engagement. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of talk about just strange behavior, uh, take popping pills, um, taking a lot of tramadol, which is painkiller. um, uppers downers uh and then it's not usual for a chief to to be on a sniper rifle um and that's where eddie wanted to be uh, according to these guys and he would be on the rifle all day and not only that but he would be shooting a lot more than they would you know when you're a sniper you you aren't shooting all day you don't use a lot of ammo because you're basically waiting hiding and waiting for your shot but a lot of these guys on the team where they describe a situation where Eddie's up there just shooting, shooting all, and they're not seeing anyone. So they don't even know what he's shooting at. Um, and so I also have to say that timeline in the timeline, the guys got into the country in February, late February and May. This is 2000, May 3rd, 2017 spring of 2017. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and May 3rd, approximately May 3rd is the day that uh, the Iraqi forces brought that Iraqi detainee to them. And three of the SEALs say that they saw Eddie stab this detainee under the guise of providing medical care. That was right. one of the first things that happened. So, Oh, okay. So that had happened before the, some of the sniper stuff. Okay. Yeah. And it's important to understand that because in the series, because this alleged stabbing incident is the only incident where there's actual video footage from that day it became the center of the trial and because there were witnesses and there was some video. And so in the series, we kind of build to that, but actually that was one of the first things that happened. And so when there, you know, these guys described how Eddie would you know, brag about all these kills that he had inflating his kill count. 
telling stories about getting into knife fights and things like that. And they all kind of brushed it off as like, you know, these are all aggressive macho guys. We all tell stories, whatever. And then this incident happens and they're all, then that's when they all kind of went, oh, I wonder if maybe these other stories he's been telling are actually true. So that's the kind of atmosphere these guys were living under from that point forward. All right. So the ISIS prisoner incident, which is what the entire series essentially is about, mm-hmm. happened prior to some of these other allegations. So I have my time. So let's now focus then on this prisoner because this is kind of the break. And now we understand where the story's going. So the Iraqi soldiers you mentioned have an ISIS prisoner that survives this bombing. And everybody's like, hey, they're bringing this guy back here. Um, yeah. He, and you edit this brilliantly because you have SEAL members being like, oh, man, here we go. Like, And it's basically a junior high kid who's completely emaciated. He's, he's already almost toast anyway, um, but he's alive. And you can see with some of the SEAL members, their whole mood changes of like, oh, like it's still ISIS, but this is not the poster, right? This is not what I expected. Right. Um, and at that point, we actually have footage. Uh, you have footage. We get to see it of the SEAL team standing around him. This kid's just on the ground. The, uh, you know, shit everywhere. And then you can see Eddie be like, I've got him. I'm going to take him. I'm going to handle this. And the video, we at least see like there's something wrong with his leg and Eddie grabs his leg and the kid makes this noise. And it's, it's very clear. This is not like where the medical attention is a priority, but then we're left to kind of go, okay, what actually happened? So it pick fill in wherever I make a mistake, but we get back to San Diego and now the SEAL team is, you know, downtime, the deployment's over, this ISIS prisoner is dead and now they start talking about what potentially may or may not have happened correct uh yeah well they start talking about it a lot earlier than that but um but yes the iraqi forces for some reason which we still don't really understand they brought this prisoner this iraqi uh, isis fighter that they found after this airstrike to the seal team and as you said, Eddie said he was going to provide medical care for this uh, guy. Eddie was a medic, um, but this isn't something that he regularly did. There were other medics on the platoon who generally handled this. Um, and uh, and so the kid came in with gunshot wound to the leg. He also may or may not have had blast lung, which is a condition if you've been in an airstrike. Um, and, uh, and he seemed weak, but yes, he was alive. And as you said, all the guys, you know, they, they're operating from a distance behind the front line or they're looking through sniper rifles. They're never up close to ISIS fighters. And so they were excited to see one of these bad, grisly guys up close. And then, uh, as Dylan describes in the series, they get there and this kid is scrawny. looks like he's in middle school. I believe he was about 17 um, and uh, was not what they were expecting. And I think they all kind of felt a little bit um, weirded out by that. But then what they describe happens afterward is uh yeah that eddie stabbed the kid at least once um and in the neck and in the side um and most of the guys didn't see what happened and so when they come back down they see this guy is dead there's medical detritus everywhere there have been a bunch of procedures done on him whether they were necessary or not um and then later in the evening everybody kind of is talking and and describing what they saw and uh and then according to one of the guys 
Ed even admitted that he had looked this fighter in the eye and stabbed him. So it's a little murky what happened and who admitted to what that day. But at the end of the day, there are three guys who say that they were witnesses to the stabbing. So this happens, then they come home. So, you know, I jumped ahead there. They're back in San Diego, which is where Mm -hmm. almost all these guys were because of, um, you know, operations down there. And they start talking about it, being like, hey, you know, what the fuck happened over there? And then it's in the community, it starts making the rounds. There also Mm -hmm. exists a picture of Eddie Gallagher standing over the dead ISIS prisoner, essentially holding his head up with the entire SEAL team behind him. Um, And then he actually did his re-enlistment over the dead body, correct? Yeah, Um, that's right. Guys were like, hey, you know, do you want to re-enlist? He's like, yeah, absolutely. I want to get my life to this job. And, you know, here's another five years, I believe. Um, And it's clear the younger guys, the other guys on the SEAL team are all like, what happened over in Mosul with the prisoner is fucked. There's a bunch of stuff that's fucked, but this is fucked. And it becomes, this leads to the investigation, right? Like very quickly, NCIS and people are on this, although it's a military investigation, which makes it a little bit different. But we have footage, you, you provide footage for all of this. So um, yeah. then what happens? So um, I also just have to say that after this, that stabbing was when these guys, uh, a couple of guys say that they witnessed Eddie shooting civilians because that's really what motivated them to want to come forward. They all understood that what happened with this Iraqi detainee was a war crime, most likely in their minds. Um, but it was the shooting of civilians that really upset them the most. Um, and there are two main incidents that end up in the trial. One, an old man that Dylan DeLay reported seeing Eddie shoot. And one was a little girl that Josh Friends uh, claims that he saw Eddie shoot. Saw her get shot while Eddie was on the gun. And then later someone else confirmed that Eddie had shot her. So those are the two big charges other than the stabbing of this ISIS pr- prisoner. Um, so anyway, yes, on the way home, before they even get home, they, they have a decompression stop in Germany on the way back. And they're already, we've got uh, all their text messages from uh, between each other. And they're already talking about what they're going to do. Um, because the environment on that deployment by the end of that summer was so toxic that even Eddie wanted to get out of there. He actually left a little bit early uh, for family reasons. But um, the guys were already talking about what they were going to do, how they were going to report this. Uh, and immediately within a week of getting home, the word was already circulating around the SEAL community in San Diego that something was up. Okay, so they're back. Higher-ups, we can get in a bunch of different timelines here of who was told what. Um, you can clearly tell there's some covering your own ass stuff here. Yeah. The younger guys are like, look, we did try to report this. Nobody wanted to listen to us. There was real yep. uh, conflict with who was in charge of the platoon because the guy that was in charge of the platoon was actually trained by Eddie. Eddie is back. He's being questioned by and NCIS. And you really paid attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and then he's being Eddie's being questioned by NCIS, uh, NCIS. And I could tell like just how dismissive where they're like, hey, are you, do you know why you're here? And he's like for murder. Like they're like, yeah, but he's in his mindset, which I do actually understand. He's like, he's thinking ISIS is the enemy. I killed a guy from ISIS. Yeah. OK, fine. Like fucking investigate me, whatever. Um, but at that moment, they raid the house. And then that leads to take us through the timeline of raiding the house, finding evidence, finding the picture of Eddie over the dead prisoner and then bragging about getting him with his knife, which then becomes another part of this to them, him actually being charged and arrested. Yeah, so they they raid Eddie's house. They raid his uh, his cage um, at the high bay uh, in Coronado. And 
essentially, aside from other things they find, they, they find the knife and they find pictures on his cell phone that he had sent to uh, one of his buddies that have him holding the dead ISIS spider's head hold and a knife. And he, he wrote uh, something like, um, good story behind this one, got him with my hunting knife. And then sent it to another buddy and said, you know, got my good story or cool story with this. I got my knife skills on. Um, And so essentially, NCIS took that as an admission of guilt. But it took them another couple of months before they built up the case. And um, and then he was arrested on September 11th of 2018. And put into uh, the brig at Miramar. And this is where the story takes another level, because this, I thought, was a an absolute lesson in storytelling in getting your part of this out there. His wife, Andrea, who had done some online consulting brand stuff, marketing. And she mm-hmm. says like, you know, I've never been on TV before. She crushes it. She was made to be on television. Definitely. I mean, there's no one on the team. I mean, no one that, uh, you know, who saw that and, and did not think that, you know, if you're in trouble, you want someone like Andrea on your side because, you know, she, it's really just a case study in how to fight for the person you love for sure. Right. And I remember at that time, Doug, of like, you know, the wherever my world is on a day to day basis of like consuming news and I don't watch a lot of the news. I, I honestly think it's a huge waste of time. But I I remember being like, oh, wait, this awesome seal and these stupid millennial seals didn't like them, you know, and if you're a certain age, you may go, oh, this is bullshit. And that's what was being, you know, now after being far more educated, which is my problem with almost every public story, it's like, I wonder what's really going on. Um, But the way this was being sold, it was, it was Fox news. It was then Trump gets involved. Sean Gallagher, his brother, who had some really great political instincts um, with his background is that it was being framed as simple as a bunch of younger SEALs that were millennials mm-hmm. didn't like their leader for being mean. And now this guy's in jail and free Eddie, free America. And it was an absolute lesson in the power of storytelling. There, I mean, it was, you, I, I agree. It was just a masterclass in branding. You know, they, they were able to brand Eddie as a hero and brand the rest of the platoon as, you know, pussies or cowards, um, which was repeated often on Fox News. And then they use their political connections as well. Um, and so between Andrea and Sean, you know, Eddie really had an incredible team on the outside. And on top of that, the Navy's policy is not to comment on anything. And the accusers from the platoon were under a gag order. So there was no counter narrative to what the Gallagher's were putting out. Um, and, you know, because of the political environment and Fox News, you know, they Fox News just picked it up and ran with it. And the Gallagher's ended up with a direct line to the president, basically. Right. They were like, go on Fox and Friends because, you know, the president and the president starts tweeting about it. And the president starts calling Richard Spencer, yep. the Navy secretary. And Spencer comes off in this. He comes off really well. And that in itself, I mean, Spencer, a little bit later on, we'll get to it. But I mean, he ends up losing his job over the deal. But. Um, the access to him and what, what were your impressions when you sat down with him? Cause I thought he was incredibly impressive in this setting. Yeah. He, he, I, I mean, he, Richard Spencer is an incredibly articulate and thoughtful guy. And he had, a he was very, uh, illuminating just to talk to him in terms of why this is important, you know, why, and why did he, it was not easy to get anyone from the Navy to comment on this because I think they all wanted this to just go away and uh clearly it's not going away 
So to have the opportunity to talk to Richard Spencer and get his thoughts on it, you know, he he is angry about it. He uh, he believes in the Navy, he believes in the mission of the military, and he thinks that this is a huge stain on the military, but also threatens America's moral authority um, in the world on the battleground. You know, if you if the if the president is allowed to intervene on a whim, which was pretty unprecedented the way that this played out, then it just undermines the authority of the military. And um, and he had a lot of things to say about why that's dangerous. So Team Gallagher essentially has the president on their side. The president's telling the naval secretary that he's doing it wrong. And Richard Spencer's telling the president at the time, like, I don't think you quite understand what it is. We're investigating it. He is, he's now being held. We have very serious evidence against him. And yet all the public narration of the story is that Gallagher's just being completely screwed over. Um, his defense team is incredible. Um, we can get to that. I, I think we should throw in the Brian Ferguson element of him representing other SEALs. And then maybe yeah. most importantly, how screwed up this got. Because I want to pause before we get to the Corey Scott element, who is another member on the SEAL team that will play a very important part in this story. But however you can summarize the amazing legal part of this, but then also how poorly it was handled on the prosecution side and what that led to prior to the trial happening. Yeah, well, uh, at the beginning, uh, the Gallagher's did not have great lawyers. And then, um, strangely, uh, the former police commissioner of New York, Bernie Carrick, got involved. And he uh, spoke with Mark Mukasey, who's one of Trump's lawyers, um, who became involved. And another guy named Tim Parlatore, who I think made his name representing members of the mafia. Um, and so this was kind of an oddball, but powerhouse collection of attorneys. And they just went on full offensive, basically. Um, and uh, on the Navy side, there was uh, the head prosecutor's name was Chris Chaplack. A major mistake that the Navy made among several was that they embedded a tracking device into an email um, because there were leaks uh, of evidence that were showing up in uh, the news. And they wanted to know where these leaks were coming from and how, how were they getting from, uh, from the NCIS to the defense or to the newspapers. So they embedded this little tracking device in an email that went to the lawyers. I think it went to Mukasey, Parlatory. It also went to the Navy Times. They were trying to figure out how the Navy Times was getting uh, these files. And of course, it was discovered and blew up and the Gallagher team accused the Navy of spying on them. And uh, as a result of that, the Navy had to let Gallagher out. And Chris Chaplack, the head prosecutor, their most experienced prosecutor, was removed from the case about two weeks before the trial was to start. So it was going to be hard to recover from that, for sure. The defense is incredibly, Mukasey's impressive, Palatore's very impressive. And then you have this 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 figure, this figure in the shadows, Brian Ferguson, who's basically going to all the SEAL members, kind of scaring them right into yeah. them letting him represent them. Uh, everybody in the documentary comes off as like completely confused as to who Ferguson really is and what the <laughs> motives are. But is it fair to say that Ferguson essentially was trying to get as many of the SEAL team members like on his side of it so that they could work essentially for the defense 
So even if there were SEAL team members that were anti-Eddie Gallagher, that he would be able to manipulate them, manipulate their stories or have access to maybe some angle that they could play uh, to benefit Gallagher. Because that's kind of how it's led to believe, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you what his motivation is because I think that's just one of the central mysteries that nobody really understands. But, you know, Brian Ferguson is a, uh, I believe, in the Air Force Reserves. Um, and But essentially is a civilian attorney who represents these guys pro bono for free. Just came in in May of 2018, I believe. As, as soon as these guys started giving uh, uh, interviews to NCIS and started calling them all up. And yeah, as you said, scaring them to death, saying that you're going to be culpable for murder. There are other things that happened on this deployment. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of these guys have things that happened on deployment they didn't want coming to light. Um, and basically saying they're all going to get go to jail. Eddie's going to get off, get a movie deal and a book deal, and you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. And so it worked with a lot of them. And I think he ended up representing about 14 of the SEALs from the, from the platoon, including some witnesses to the stabbing. I'm going to give the audience a chance here to break because this is the all-time spoiler alert. There's probably like really two spoiler alerts that we could possibly have here. Um, I hope you like what we've done to this point. I would suggest watching it if you have access to Apple and watching this documentary. But then we're going to pick it up here as we finish. Okay, so we know that the prosecution, despite it being switched out two weeks before the trial starts and then being completely undermanned against the defense team's talents, we have... The picture and text of Eddie over the dead ISIS soldier's body, texting his friends, got this one with my knife, essentially, because he says two different things, as you said. You have multiple members of that SEAL team serving under Eddie, accusing him of shooting civilians, shooting an old man, shooting a girl, all these things. But in their cross-examination of Palatori, he's basically tearing them apart. Like, he's just he's just doing a great job. And... Yeah even though you have have this testimony and it, it, they still feel like there's 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 some gray area like how is this going to go and that's where the Corey Scott part of this still doesn't make sense to guys that served with him that sat in that courtroom Corey Scott who's actually there was there when the ISIS prisoner was killed he tells Eddie Gallagher don't worry I got you but he's testifying against him so nobody quite understands what the hell is going on and then what happens with Corey Scott well, on the stand, uh, Corey's asked, he's asked what he saw on the day of the stabbing. And he again repeats that he saw Eddie stab this prisoner. But then he adds a new piece of information, which is that he himself covered up the ISIS fighter's breathing tube and suffocated him to death. So all of a sudden, there's a new uh, element in the death of this prisoner, and it sort of takes the heat off of Eddie. You wouldn't think that it would because, you know, he still said that Eddie stabbed the prisoner, but it just threw everyone for such a loop that after that, the prosecution was afraid to call other witnesses that were represented by Brian Ferguson, as Corey Scott was, including Ivan Villanueva, who was another witness to the stabbing. He, he was never called to the stand because they were, after that Corey Scott debacle, they were afraid of what Ivan might say that would even further throw off the case. Right. And Dylan and Josh, who are, you know, camera facing in this doc, who are very anti-Eddie, who are part of the charge behind this, they say, like, Corey was on our side in the beginning. 
And then I think we find yeah. out later on that Corey just had guilt about Eddie having a family and potentially going to jail for the rest of his life. And since he had immunity through the Brian Ferguson deal, which Ferguson pulled off, that then he knew that he could basically say he asphyxiated the prisoner, which then doesn't put the murder on Eddie, but is Corey admitting to it, but Corey's going to have immunity and get off. And so, I mean, look, the documentary basically tells us this, but it's it's not in some, this is exactly what happened, but line by line, that's basically what happened, right? Yeah, I mean, you can see, we you see it in the series, uh, in the initial interview that NCIS did with Corey Scott, he's very convicted. You know, he, he describes Eddie as, you know, uh, someone who just wants to kill anything that moves and, he really, he was sort of the ringleader in pushing forward for this investigation. And then suddenly when he's on the stand, he is, has a very flat affect. He, they go through the questions and, you know, Parlatory presents this as a spontaneous admission on the stand. But I think if you listen, it's very clearly rehearsed. Um, and what kind of coordination between the defense and between Brian Ferguson happened? And where is the line of legality there? That's sort of the unanswered question. So Eddie is not guilty. Um, the SEAL team guys that came after him are left in disbelief. Uh, one of the guys, I think Josh, talks about talking with Corey. And as I said, Corey mm -hmm. just felt guilty about Eddie going to jail. And then you're dealing with the what I think so many of us that have a hard time. Some people be listening to be like, hey, Rules of engagement are rules of engagement. Um, war crimes are war crimes. Geneva Convention, all these different things. Or maybe, you know, again, I've never served. I don't understand it. But I think I can at least allow myself to go, yeah, but when you're over there and you see this shit happening, you start to kind of play a little loose with whatever the morals are supposed to be. Um, and that's, I think, what continues to be a struggle for everybody that was involved with this. And then in the last 20 minutes of the series, you have Eddie Gallagher a couple years removed. And are you interviewing him at this point? Yeah, that, that was about when was that spring of this past, of last year, twenty twenty one. And what does Eddie tell you about what happened? He his story kind of changed a bit. He uh, he basically said that their intention was to kill this prisoner by doing medical experiments on him, so using him as kind of a a human guinea pig, and he. He he says that other members of the platoon participated in this, that he would let, you know, he'd let one guy do a, a chest tube and let someone else do another one because they wanted practice and that they were just going to practice on this guy until he died. There was no, they, they weren't trying to save his life. Basically. You ask him, you say, quote, was your, you say, was your intention to kill the guy? And he says, yeah, pretty much. Yes, that's right. And, you know, I believe that that itself is a violation of the third Geneva convention, which lays out rules for treatment of prisoners. And, but I, and I have to say, I think in, in Eddie's mind, he didn't see this as a prisoner. I think in his mind, this was still a combatant, you know, and that's, that's where from his perspective, as you said, you can imagine, uh, the way he views this, this guy was just shooting at us from within a building and now he's here. But that's the way war works. That's why we have the Geneva Conventions and that's why there have to be these lines and accountability. Yeah, because I completely understand Eddie's mindset. I, I Could you? 
I can, uh, yes. I mean, in one sense, I can. I can put myself in that mindset. I understand sort of the desire to just go out there and kill them all. But, you know, that's not how we operate. And as a country, that can't be how we operate. And I also say, you know, from the beginning, I think we all thought that this was going to be a story of like the fog of war or too many deployments, you know, cloud your judgment or you can't tell who's good and bad and the line gets blurry. But according to all of the guys who reported up, the line was never blurry for them. And they knew that this was wrong. They knew what when, you know, in the case of the uh, alleged civilian shootings, it wasn't like things were happening so fast that there wasn't time to decide if this was a civilian or a combatant. They, you know, these are snipers. They're just up in a hide. You've got all the time in the world. So it, these weren't, this wasn't that kind of a situation. And, um, and what we were expecting to be maybe a PTSD kind of story uh, turned out to not be the case. You know, uh, Eddie does not seem to think that he was affected by PTSD. And he also, um, I don't think has any regrets about the death of this prisoner. He, he seems, I mean, I think he wants to be proud of it basically. And there are a contingent of people who follow him who feel the same way. So I think that is one of the things that the story really exposed this divide and between these two schools of thought in this country about how, how we should fight war and how we should fight with an enemy like ISIS that does not abide by the rules of warfare. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really what it was, because you're right. I mean, when you watch Eddie throughout this entire thing, obviously, it's a little bit of a pivot from him denying it for three episodes to the last 20 minutes going, yeah, whatever. He's like, pretty much was going to kill him. Um, and there's no remorse. There's there's none whatsoever. And I I can't pretend to know what that feeling is like um, when you're actually facing it and when you're out there. But I would wonder like Geo's an incredible character in this story who's not a seal. He's a Marine, but he's like a tech correct and he's yeah. with the seal team which causes its own you know kind of hornet's nest of egos because every time geo geo is so good on camera i don't know if he had a writer i mean some of his lines were <laughs> delivered perfectly i'm just and then the whole time i'm watching him i'm like would i like him or would i not be able to stand this guy i can't figure it out and then he even mentions the time where he and eddie get into it and then eddie's like yeah to kick his ass out back and then geo tells a story he goes i took the correction and, and so I'm like, wait, did Eddie beat up Gio? And I don't know who yeah. to believe in that one. But Gio, who didn't even like Eddie, who may have gotten into a fight with him, goes to visit him while he's in prison, essentially, and says, this is bullshit. We are at war. What's happening to you is wrong. And then still is kind of saying that some of the stuff didn't happen. I mean, the, the Gio part of this, I thought, was a really interesting. So add to that whatever you can, because he's about as much fun to watch in this as anyone. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Geo, Geo is a really uh, entertaining uh, storyteller, for sure. Um, and it's not exactly clear where that turn happened, but he was, yeah, as you said, he's a Marine. He came from Signals Intelligence, so his job was targeting um, information, basically. And he was really tight with these guys. They were all good friends. Even when they came back from deployment, they were hanging out together, having birthday parties together. And then at some point, according to Geo... He did not, he says that he had not heard about these civilian shootings, um, didn't know anything about a stabbing accusation. Everyone else in the platoon says it's impossible that he wouldn't have known that because they all lived in a tiny space and they were all talking about it all the time. But 
be that as it may, he all of a sudden Gio felt like these guys were conspiring um, against Eddie, and he went to visit him, and then went repeatedly, and then became friends and actually tried to help him out with his defense. Um, he also testified that when he he him, he was the first one to take a photo with the body of this ISIS fighter. And he testified that when he lifted up this fighter, there was a bandage on his neck that no one has cops putting there, but clearly was in a place where these other guys say that Eddie had stabbed him. And he says that the bandage flopped off and that there was no hole. So he was testifying to support Eddie. The other guys say it's impossible for that bandage to come off like that because it's basically like mousetrap glue. Um, you know, it's a to put on a wet wound. Um but anyway, that's just one of the ways that Gio has tried to help Eddie out. And um, and as for the fallout between Gio and the rest of the guys, you know, I'm not exactly sure what happened there. But at some point, Gio had to change part um, and landed on on the side of Eddie. Where are we now with the story? Because I was going to ask, I was actually going to ask, like, does anyone look at the end of this that was totally in defense of Eddie and go, wait, he just admitted all this? But I already know what the answer is. None of the people that were on Team Eddie are going to change their minds. They were going to change their minds before. And the people that were against him are never going to see it anything other than a violation of war crime. So for me to say now that they saw episode four, did anyone reach out to you and change? I already know the answer. None of these guys are going to change their mind. Um, Where's the story now then? Um, I think that's it. You know, that. Now a little time has passed since the trial. And so some of these guys have gotten out of the service. They've moved across the country or to different parts of the country um, because, you know, they took so much heat for coming forward. They were, even after the trial, you know, the Gallagher's continued to post their faces online on social media um, and basically just encourage other members of the SEAL community who are on pro Gallagher to, uh, go after them and so they they definitely um went through a period of feeling like what was the point of all of this you know putting our our careers and families in jeopardy to come forward if nothing was going to happen but now i think uh they're they seem to still be glad that they did it they now they're no longer under a gag order so they had this opportunity to uh, tell their side of the story, which I think is the first time that their narrative is really being heard. Um, and they all seem to feel like it's very important for young SEALs to hear their side of the story because, you know, they believe in the Navy, they believe in the mission of the SEAL teams, and they just don't want young SEALs to be idolizing someone like Eddie Gallagher, who doesn't want to play by the rules or the rules of warfare. Um, and so they think it's important that you know, what they did was important for themselves and for the future of the SEAL teams. Yeah, I mean, that's some of the stuff that I think civilians, we don't understand where Richard Spencer, now no longer the Naval Secretary, um, him talking about, you know, the way a SEAL should see themselves, the way somebody in Special Forces should see themselves and what the standard is. And it can sound a little hokey maybe to us on the outside, but we, most of us have never made that kind of commitment. I don't care how you feel about it. Like, it's a serious commitment. It's uh, it's a different way of life. It's a different kind of um, standard that you hold yourself to, which I think in a way can be very admirable. And people take that very seriously. And I think that was kind of Spencer's point about this entire story, which I think came through perfectly every time he was on camera. 
Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, he also talks a little bit about the, um, actually, no, it's not, it's not Spencer, it was uh, Paul Soldier, uh, just about the chilling effect on future whistleblowers, you know, when there's misconduct on other deployments or, you know, it, it continues to happen back in the, in the fall. There was a, I think, a military journalist who exposed the, uh, a civilian, a drone strike on civilians in Syria. You know, if, if this, if people are afraid to come forward because they see what happened to these guys and that there was no end result, there was no, in their eyes, no justice brought, then why is another younger SEAL gonna, or soldier, um, gonna step forward and call out wrongdoing when they see it? If, you know, they're, if they're risking going through the same thing these guys went through for, for no, no net positive in the end. So, I think that's one of the big effects of the story in general um, is just seals are going to be looking at this uh, like what's going to happen to me if I step forward and call out my chief or call out my, you know, my teammate for something that I think is wrong. It's something yeah, people and, are going to have to grapple with. Yeah. And as those guys are dressed throughout, like you don't do this, especially in the seal team, you don't actually do this, which is why they had a hard time with it, but they felt like they had to. And yet we're kind of left you know, I don't think it's a matter of what happened. It's just a matter of how you define what happened. That's that's really what we're left with. Yeah, you're right. They, SEALs don't do this. They don't report things. They don't report on their own. And uh, they also don't go on TV and talk about what they do. So this whole project was just a really unusual and exciting experience as a filmmaker and I think as a viewer to, to be able to see this footage, go on deployment with these guys and then experience what this what it means to form these bonds and then have them come apart in a situation like this. No, it's unbelievable because we, the story stands alone on its own. The story, even without the twist, I was entertained. And then you have seals telling you about the stuff and then we have so much footage from it. So the edits, um, the, the outlining of it, the interviews, the instincts of the questions, this is really, really big time stuff, Doug. So thanks for sharing this project oh, with all of us. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. The line on Apple. Um, sign up. Maybe I think there may be a free trial. Bang it out. Four episodes. Yeah, You'll be yeah. good to go. There you go. You can do it in a week. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. All right, we had a lot of follow-up to the basketball player who lied. Oh, my God. Kyle's got the... <laughs> He's got the John Lennon shades going today. But are you wearing a leather jacket, too? Problem? No, no, no. It's a flannel. Oh, okay. I just... No, there's no problem. It's a good look, no. Kyle, actually. I, I kind of like it. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we had a lot of follow-up. A lot of follow-up. 
it definitely leaned towards the you have to tell you have to tell the sister um people were even more aggressive about their advice than our advice on that one um one thing i have noticed that we get every now and then is when somebody tells us oh the point you missed you're like yeah most of the time i think we got it covered and there's a lot of times too it'll be like the point you missed it's like actually we did say that we did say that so wait what what is the suggestion that we missed don't give it any light. Don't give it any light. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not even win. going to. Because it was it was a point you missed that, that Kyle, I think, forwarded me out of annoyance. Um, because <laughs> we definitely made the point. We definitely made the point. And, it, and it's kind of like the book stuff. Like, hey, what was that book you... You mean the one I mentioned on the pod you just hit rewind button on? <laughs> that one? Yeah, that was the book we... That was the book we mentioned. Yeah, instead of getting into my DM so I could then just... Listen back, guy. I got timestamps in there. Or just follow Rosillo Book Club on Twitter. Totally. There you go. Follow Rosillo Book Club on Twitter. Rosillo Book Club on Twitter, which I have nothing to do with. Uh, those guys, those guys put in the work. Okay. People were asking, by the way, if you have, you've seen, I had a couple people in my DMs, whether or not you've seen the memes account, the Rosillo memes account. I'm like, yeah, you've seen it on Twitter. I had a guy, because there's, there's an Instagram account too. I don't know if you've seen that one. But uh, yes, you have seen uh, the, the Rosillo memes Twitter account. Wow. The Rosillaverse has exploded. Thanks to everyone. Yeah, that's that's a that's a mess. No, I re- I retweeted it because of um, the the Saruti thing, liking feminine hundred and seventy pound guys. We just found out about also a new the Nancy guy, Kerrigan Kyle one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> Great job by you. <laughs> right, right. The Rosillo meme account was was funny. You know, it's it's a slow it's a slow build. You know, there's not a ton, but you know, I like it. It's very grassroots. I, I like that about yeah. this podcast. You know, we don't. We don't go out seeking. We just, the people talk. There you go. All right. Next stop, tank tops. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go. This guy is admitting that he does lie. So we're going to train. We're not going to read everybody's follow-ups. We appreciate the, all the follow-ups is always the interest. And most of you guys nailed it. Some of you guys are like really aggressive about it. Like you go right back and walk in the house and tell your sister, this guy's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I think there's a more delicate way to handle that. Okay, here we go. Five eight one ninety five. Get a little chubby. I'll work on it. Latest episode made me think of my younger days, and now I need advice on how to handle the lie I molded as a young kid. First, let me say I might have fudged things, but I'm not out stealing some guy's name. Okay. The main heart of the story is there are people in my life who legit believe I was an all-state football player in high school because, well, I've offhanded said I'm an all-state athlete and they know I played football. Okay. Well, yeah. So they they think you're an all-state <laughs> football player because you fucking tell told them that you were. Right. It's like a rumor flying around. Yeah. Like telling I, people this. Yeah. I, honestly, I didn't love the start of this email because he's like, well, it's not like I stole somebody's name, but here's kind of where we're at. A lot of people think I'm an all-state football player and they may have thought that because I have mentioned that I was an all-state athlete and I played football. I'm like, oh, well, I think we solved the case. I was pretty good at football at a small school, but was rarely, if not ever, the best player on the field. Truth is, I only, the truth is, <laughs> I was only ever all district and my all state honors was to get this, was get this, Jesus Christ, dude, was get this middle school track. Yeah, it isn't even a real thing, but we went down to a statewide tournament and ran a relay and got the medal, so it said all state. So I said, fuck it, good enough for me. All right. I, too, have uh, an all-whatever relay track medal when I was 13. The last time I mentioned it, I was 13. So that you wrote this in the email is also concerning, too. That Hey, the the only thing I was all state in was a a relay when we were junior high. Um. 
Middle school. Right. Okay. I have in the last couple of years stopped outright saying I was an all-state athlete. Well, that's that's good. And when people ask uh, about football, <laughs> I often give a story about some certain player, just list some stats. Doesn't come up often, and, and who, really, who cares? My problem is every few months, somebody new comes along. Like one or two people will be like, "Oh yeah, so and so was." I'm leaving out the name here. Was all-state in high school, and now I'm like, "Yeah, well, you know, small school, no biggie," and just move it along. The nice part is, if I'm out playing flag football, doing pickup hoops, you know, I hold my own and at least give the illusion of somebody who could have uh, been a previous athlete. But I do go, but do I go back and tell these people, "Hey, I was lying"? Do I just keep brushing it off and eventually stop being brought up as I get older? All right. Well, look, you wrote the email. You're calling yourself out, so you deserve credit for that. Uh, I would not actually be like, hey, everybody, I need to tell you something. I'm not an all-state football player. I would just, I would downplay it every time, kind of like you're saying here. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is that hard. Just, just, you need to phase it out in your own way. And as people get older, I really doubt they're going to be introducing you as a former all-state football player. Yeah, I think this is a nice it's you got it you got it out there. You told people anonymously. Maybe that's a that's a nice way to outlet that and just keep it going until, you know, never ever bring it up and always downplay it and yeah, it's simple. And you you can just feel gross by yourself and nobody'll know except for us three. Yeah, and you haven't gotten caught up in a massive lie like the last week's or last episode's emailer did. Um so I mean, it's not worthy of like a Facebook post or an Instagram post being like, hey, guys, actually, I'm not a, I'm not an all-state athlete. <laughs> just, you know, people are going to stop talking about it if you stop talking about it. So just don't bring it up. Yeah, don't bring it up. Like, that's your punishment. You, you have to actually start saying, you know what, I wasn't like, really that good. Yeah, nobody's going to walk into a room and be like, hey, that's that all, that's that former all-state athlete. Like, no one, no one cares. No one's going to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you guys must be pretty young, right? I mean, did we go back? To, let me yeah, so for him email. to just recently stop talking about it, I mean, you got to be fresh out of college if not still in it right yeah these guys have to be pretty young uh, yeah you're right Saruti. trust us on this one as you get older no one like, cares. Hey, is, is all state coming tonight <laughs> <laughs> uh you know the only check tape <laughs> the only thing did you make high school uh all-star team Saruti, for football no i actually broke my ankle my senior year um you were pretty good though weren't you i was like a quick slot receiver type guy but i i was yeah i don't know i wasn't gonna make all state by any means okay no i i thought i just remember somebody a couple people because you were from the area around bristol like oh sir he's a pretty good athlete um i would uh i would add this as a potential other scenario is there any chance the other people all know that he's lying and their punishment on him is never addressing it but making sure they always bring it up to introduce it then <laughs> to see how he reacts that'd be great i do think that that's that is a possibility that he needs to think about Keep your eyes open, yeah, like, dude. See if there's any chuckles. It wasn't like he played at Bama or something. Like, hey, meet, meet our buddy. So wait, he was an all-state athlete that didn't actually play in college? Probably is what he's is what his story is, right? Yeah, but that's that's totally plausible. I mean, if you're at a if you're at a small on academics, yeah. Well, on top of that, what division are we talking in some of these states? They can be all state at a bad division and still not even play Section at a good, C or something, yeah. yeah. Right. So, okay. Um, here's one becoming Rosillo 62270. Just got a Y membership. I may be becoming Ryan Rosillo. I used to love going out in college, and a couple years uh, after that, I'm in the rare situation where I'm still in my college town. <laughs> Did it? 
and still have most of my core group of friends here as well. On top of that, become good friends with two dudes I've worked with that also like to tie one on. Not bad for a post-college social life, right? Yeah, man. Here's the thing. Since COVID, uh, I found I have detested the bars. Lately, I've opted for setting up multiple TVs in my living room and watching games all day instead of hanging out <laughs> with my buddies. I'll straight up lie to them saying I'm busy when in reality I have nothing going on. This is starting to get close to home. Um, if you told me I turned into this three years ago, I would have freaked out. However, I haven't regretted not socializing. I do a morning news radio show and call high school football and basketball games and I'm just dead by the end of the week. So you're doing morning news every day. No wonder you don't want to go out. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, I did it for three months where I got up and did morning radio. And I was like, man, I'd love to maybe never have to do this again. Uh, it is tough. It is a lifestyle and it's a commitment and it sucks. Also, my fiance is the shy type whose college friends moved away. So we don't have a sort of couple social circle. My question is this, um, is this, should this be a red flag? Should I put the urge aside of watching games on a, on a free Friday or Saturday, because it's ultimately more important that I have fun with my friends instead of seeing if my Alabama, Texas A&M basketball bet hits. I'm also thinking of getting out of radio, right? We get a lot here. Um, <laughs> what I have would I have the desire to socialize if I'm not getting up at four in the morning, five days per week? All right, Sarudi, I love your advice on how to make friends as a couple. The Kyle workout partner situation, dark, dark horse, top media personality story of 2022. Okay. All right. Uh, look, part of it is you're getting up every day. Because like I said, I did it. And then when I would try to go out on a Friday, I was, I just, it was like fumes, you know, like all you want to do is go back to bed. I would say that if you're in your 20s here, which it sounds like you are, and you still have the option. I mean, some people just get over it at a very young age. Some people just go, you know what? I don't want to go out. I want to go to bed early. I want to feel good in the morning. And that's not really anyone's. I mean, honestly, it's the better thing to do. I mean, who are we kidding? But it sounds like your friends like you and you like your friends. So just be very wary of the full hermit mode. All right. Because once you start going down that road and you're never returning the calls and then you're always the guy that never wants to hang out, those calls are going to stop. So I think, you know, friendships are a lot like anything else. You have to invest a little bit of time in them. And I would, I will tell you, I just straight up regret not being more forceful about friendships with guys that I'm still very close with and keep in contact with. But hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? I turned it all down forever. I turned it all down because I was like, no, game's on. No, got to work. And I had a justification because they're like, dude, the guy watches a million fucking games. This is what he does. This is how he does the job. Probably shouldn't have done it this way, whatever. But the calls will stop happening. So um, you're asking about getting out of radio on top of everything else. I don't know. That's, that's a separate fucking email altogether. I don't know your job. I don't know your goals. I don't know how much money you're making. It sounds like you have the support of your fiance when you have one of these morning things. When I did mornings for like three months, I was like, I might as well just get married, I guess. Because if I'm going to do this for multiple years, I might as well get married. And I want to have somebody else here to make sure I wake up on the random day that I might not, like, I'll just miss miss the alarm. Like, you know, Mike and Mike for 20 years having to make sure the alarm never goes wrong. Like, Sarudi, how long did you work on that show? A year. And uh, did you go out on Fridays? I tried, but I was definitely, <laughs> you know, because I would what I would do is I would break up the sleep into two parts, which I've actually now read is like maybe what you should do. I don't know. We've digressed. Um, I did that. And I, I mean, it, it sucked. It Every day was miserable. Too- so I would sleep. I would sleep because I like to watch games. And um, so I sleep. I'd go to bed at like, you know, 11 or midnight. And I'd wake up at like 3, 3.30, you know, shower, get in for like 4.15. And then I'd come home at like 1 p.m. And I'd take a nap from like 1.30 to 5. 
wake up for dinner. Sometimes it would be in six and then, you know, games would be on again. So, but, but the problem is like, I never had any like free time. I never had a life. All I was doing was watching games, sleeping and working on Mike and Mike. So that was a year I was absolutely miserable. Um, I was also vitamin D deficient because I never saw the sun because it was the most, you know, winters here in Connecticut. Serious, serious twilight vibes. Uh, yeah, that that's actually kind of when I got that nickname, um, which was a bummer. So uh, I, I, <laughs> it really was. So I would say it definitely has to do with the schedule. Like I, I didn't want to go out and it was it sucked because I was in my early mid 20s and, you know, like we had the good West Hartford crew going and I just I just kind of like Grants was absolutely Pete Grants. Yeah. But, you know, it was a good career opportunity, so we did it. It's fine. But I did it for a year, and I was definitely happy, not because of the show or anything, but just because of the lifestyle to be out of that. The other part of this guy's email that's interesting is the um, the fiancé-wife aspect. So I'm kind of like a no-new-friends guy. I've got a core group from high school, some guys from college. Like and Drake not that I'm here. not like Not that I'm, like, mean or, like, dismissive of, of new people and new guys that I meet, but I'm just not, like, going to go out of my way to be friends with them. And my wife is a big-time extrovert. Like, she's the, the center of attention in every room, which is great. And so you kind of need that to, to to make more friends or to go out. And she'll tell me, like, stop being a hermit. Stop, like, get off the couch. Stop watching Premier League soccer all day. Like, let's go out. Um, so she's kind of motivated me to be more active. So you kind of need that. So I kind of hate to say it, but you've got, like, a double-edged thing where it's kind of it's kind of killing you both ways here with not only, like, the lifestyle, but the fiancé also kind of being an introvert. Yeah, you got to force yourself to do it because I'm, I'm bad with it. Like, last night's a perfect example. I was like, there's only two games. You've been locked in however many of the last few nights. I already wrote out everything. And then I was like, man, AD looks pretty good. Next thing you know, it's 7 o'clock. And I was like, well, I got to watch at least the first half and see if Minnesota and Golden State. I was like, oh, I'm a tight one. Two of my favorite teams to watch. And I was like, well, I'll write out another open. You know? Next thing you know, I'm watching Ray Donovan. It's, it's 1030. I'm going to bed. So It's a good thing you don't play computer be- games. No, last <laughs> yeah. night was going to be a night where I was going to like, you know what? Let's leave the house. Let's go do something. Called called no one and ended up watching the only two games that were on. And of course, Friday, I don't want to miss the games because Friday's like, I don't know, Friday NBA games always feel like the most important games to watch. Let's try to sneak in one more here. Do we answer anything there? I think we did. I don't think so. But Kyle kind of brought up a quick point. You should play Call of Duty or FIFA or something and get on with your friends because that's how I hang out with most of my friends a lot without actually going out. I'm going to guess most of my guys aren't in the online community. <laughs> Probably not. All right. Um, I think this one's pretty simple. We'll just do it because this guy seems super motivated. I just want to bring up the idea of what this guy did. Feel free to use names, places, et cetera. No, none of the other four listen to the podcast. Dude, are you sure? Right. 5'11", right, 158, 22, swimmer's body, and naturally, uh, naturally tan. Check attached photo. So this guy decided to include a picture of him in a Speedo in a shower. We do not want this long term. It's just no a good. statement. No, it's a position here from the podcast from this day forth. I appreciate you giving us the full scope of the story here, but it actually, as I read the email, has nothing to do. So I was like, all right, we got a guy selfie speedo in his shower. He's in great he's shape. He's in great shape. He is tan. He's not lying. Yeah. 5'11", But that's, that's why we do the stats. It leaves a little to the imagination. Wow, I wonder what I wonder what 5'9", 230 looks like. You know, you don't have to show us. I would tell you 5'11", 158 isn't the classic swimmer's body. I feel like a guy that opens with swimmer's body and tan, though, is the guy that's going to send you a picture in the email every time. That picture's gone to a lot of people. Yeah. It has nothing to do with what he's asking. 
Nothing. We better get to it. <laughs> All right. Simple question. What is y'all's take on itemizing down to the dollar on group vacations? I'm with four <laughs> other college friends. Uh, UNC. He said, do it. Look, he, this guy does not care. He wants everyone to know every name. He wants, he wants people to know about this. Maybe that's the whole point. We're being used for an itemization dispute on a vacation. Uh, they had a week-long vacation in Hawaii. We've been there. Oh, wait, they're there now. But maybe that's where the picture is. I don't know. Like, which, What's the date on this email? Because sometimes it's too late. All right, this is a very recent one. Um, we've been here two days and gotten into an argument over itemizing each item on the grocery list. Uh, E.g., I should separately pay for the ice cream since I'm the only one eating it. So they're saying you pay for your ice cream. We all just graduated college to believe that we should itemize a trip, make over 100K. A couple years older, the two other guys and me make closer to 60, 65K a year, I imagine, obviously. And we believe itemizing causes more conflict uh, than simply everyone paying equal share, even if we don't use everything equally. Another example, fruit is my favorite food. So I bought, well, you're a swimmer, dude. Obviously, you love your fruit. Uh, fruit is my favorite food. Bought three cartons of blueberries, three cartons of strawberries, along with some bananas. The two guys who want to itemize want to charge me fully for the fruit instead of contributing literally 3 to $4. Well, raspberries... Well, you didn't buy any raspberries, though. They can be expensive every now and then. Like five bucks for an organic little bin of these guys. To me, it's not about the money at all. It's a principle. I put a lot of my salary in investments. Congrats on your portfolio. But I still have money for this trip, and it's ridiculous. They want to take time to charge me more because I eat more of certain things, drink more, et cetera. Hawaii is dope, by the way. The picture has nothing to do with it. We're talking about fruit fucking charges. And I, I am not a big everybody go through. But if that's what somebody would want to do, I would be like, all right, we're going to do it. Well, here's what happens is the guys who want to itemize win. They win. Because normally I'm like, I just don't want to argue with you over these things. And if that means then I'm only paying for my stuff, then I'm only paying for my stuff. So losing the argument isn't really a loss. It's not that big of a deal. Um, people, we've talked about this forever. This is not new. There's usually always one person that's going to try to take advantage of the let's just all chip in. Um, we had a golf trip once and then we found out after the fact that one of the guys that got in on the golf trip didn't have any money after the fact. So when it was time to settle up, he's like, Hey, things are a little tough. Do you mind if I kind of like hit you, hit you with two installments? And it was like, you know what would have been great is access to that information before we booked a fucking Airbnb and paid for everything and all the food and all the booze for like four days. Like we all thought we were going to square up at the end end when we cleaned up the place and you're telling us you're doing an affirm deal with us like you a put personal. a boys trip on layaway come on <laughs> yeah and you would be like hey things have been a little tough you know what when normally when things are tough the guy tells his buddies ahead of time that he can't make the trip but we're only talking about fruit here so what i think you've done is you found a way to send us a picture of you with your clothes off and it worked because there's no way like i i agree with you I would say, who gives a shit? Just buy your own fruit then. Who cares? Like, move on. You're in Hawaii. Yeah, that stuff. I mean, you've heard about my sliced cheese debacles, and there was other stuff that came back to me in the Potsdam Price Chopper or the IGA or whatever. But, like, when it when it was clear that some stuff was going to be like, well, I, I don't, I don't drink milk. I'm doing a, I'm doing a coffee, no milk thing. And it's like, all right. I guess we won't get milk for all of us and I'll have to fucking sneak back here later or I'll, I'll, I'll have two carts. And like, that's, that's what it comes down to. It's like, I'll, I'll go buy the sliced cheese later or I'll do it. I'll do it in my little carry on bag. That's just for me. And then, you know, 
that's just what it is when it, when, when everything comes together and it's like, you just don't want any problem items in that thing. Like most of us were cool, but there's two guys that have a problem with the particular style of cheese. So guess what? We did the, that cheese separately. We didn't go without, you don't have to go without your strawberries. Just don't put it on that conveyor belt with everybody else's stuff. If you're not, if you don't want to have to be nickel and dimed and have to read receipts and get highlighters out, you just might need can two we, trips. In the titling of this can you title Kyle's Dairy Rant? Because <laughs> you're right though. Like all the different, you know, I, but, but, the thing about it, though, is there is always one person that whether it's like he's the his, he's the youngest of four and he had three older sisters. So even if he's telling you like, oh, yeah, cool, whatever, like his life has only been just fucking taking whatever he wants. All right. You know, or maybe there's not that every only child is like this, but I've noticed at least with girlfriends that are only children, there's always a little bit of like, wait, you know, like, like I don't know if that's the if that's the move and again we could use a hundred different examples here but you know as the group expands sapiens right as the group expands there's always going to be one person trying to take advantage of it so maybe these guys had a bad experience before and that's why they want to itemize everything but you know if somebody were to say it's almost like a dinner i'm not a huge family style guy i don't want to be you know going around like i want my dinner i don't want to share it with anybody it's my dinner you have your dinner i don't want yours you know, if you want to give me a bite or whatever, fine. But like, I don't want, I don't want shit all over the plate. I don't want you asking for a bite of this. If we're not, we don't have that kind of relationship. But if somebody said, Hey, we're getting this house together, but everybody be in charge of your own groceries. I'd be like, all right, fine. I don't care. I'll just buy my own groceries. But if I see you in my blueberries, now we're gonna have an issue. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. Life advice. Participants, that guy's going to have a great week in Hawaii, I can tell you right now. Um, I think that's it. I think that covers it. And then we're going to have a Super Bowl matchup on Monday. We'll be all over it, fired up, a lot, a lot more football to come as well, some hoops. So please subscribe. And uh, thanks for the podcast right here, Spotify. Mm-hmm.